0: everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast, it's James Rudd here. Today we're talking about something a little different to usual. We're talking about percutaneous management of acute ischemic stroke. I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Helen Rutledge all about this, and she's written a Education in Heart piece recently with Dr. Nick Curzon, and we have a long discussion all about the rationale and principles behind percutaneous management of stroke, the evidence base for this treatment, and also, we try to appreciate the logistical challenges and how they might be overcome in terms of delivering at this life-saving therapy to patients with acute ischemic stroke. I really hope you enjoyed the discussion, and please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the show. Thanks ever so much for joining me today, Dr. Rutledge. Maybe we can start off by having you introduce yourself for the heart audience. Um, who are you, where do you work, and what do you do there?
1: Yes, hello. Thanks for the invitation. So I'm Helen Rutledge. I'm an NHS interventional cardiologist and I'm clinical leader at Worcester Royal Hospital, which is in the West Midlands region of the UK. So I treat patients with cardiovascular disorders and I intervene on coronary arteries only. I don't currently treat strokes day to day in my clinical role. But I also chair a focus group concerned with stroke thrombectomy, and that's on behalf of Bsis, so the British Cardiovascular Intervention Society, and that's made up of like-minded interventional cardiologists. And our group was instigated by our immediate ex-president, who's my co-author, Nick Curzon, um, to examine how cardiologists might help to deliver this therapy to our patients with cardiovascular disease, to those that are suffering with acute stroke.
0: And this is a huge problem, isn't it, Helen, Um, in terms of the number of patients that are potentially having strokes and then the number of patients of those of that group who are suitable for thrombectomy. Um, Could you maybe give us a few sort of numbers to, to flesh out that statement? I mean, how many patients are we talking about who might be eligible for mechanical thrombectomy treatments in the UK each year?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting calculation. So in the UK, there are probably 90,000 strokes a year. The data is quite nicely collected, as all of our cardiology data is by the the SNAP audit. Um, About 80,000 of those are ischemic strokes. Um, But not all of those patients by any means would benefit from an acute mechanical intervention. Um, Probably the best way to understand this for cardiologists is not all patients presenting with chest pain need to go straight to a cath lab. So There's a large group of what's termed stroke mimics, which we might think of as the non-cardiac chest pains, Mm -hmm. where there is a presentation with neurological symptoms and another cause definitely needs to be found and investigated and treated. So they're not to be ignored, but they're not a stroke. Um, Then there's the true ischemic strokes, but the ones that are not caused by occlusion of a large or a main vessel. So maybe they're like the non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome patients. And then there are about somewhere between 10 and 25% of all stroke presentations that are associated with a large vessel occlusion. So that's a bit like your STEMI group. So it's a main artery that's blocked, devastating consequences if you don't restore all the blood flow quickly. Um, And they are the ones who are going to benefit from this intervention. So at a conservative estimate in the UK, about 10,000 patients a year who'd benefit from an acute stroke intervention.
0: And roughly at present, how many patients are actually getting that intervention, do you think, in the UK? I think in your paper you said it was probably about maybe only 10%, maybe even less.
1: Yeah. So if we say of all strokes, 10% of patients would benefit, about 2% of patients are getting the treatment at the moment. Okay. So that's so. 20% of those who benefit um, are getting the treatment.
0: Okay. And can you just, um, because the audience is, as you probably surmise, is made up largely of cardiologists and people with an interest in heart disease, but this isn't the only treatment for stroke, is it? We also have intravenous thrombolysis in much the same way as we used to have for STEMIs, and that's been around for a few years, hasn't it? And it's the kind of standard of care at present.
1: Absolutely. So just like in heart attacks, systemic, um, so RTPA is used to restore perfusion in stroke. And that predated any interventional treatment by several years, as it did in in hearts. Um, So the evidence was there in the 1990s. The guidelines in the UK came out in 2007, 2008. And that really changed stroke treatment. So that fast positive, which we've all heard about patients who really look like they've got an acute stroke, get their CT scan and get specialist attention from some some sort of stroke clinician on arrival in the emergency department. And that's all been set up so that intravenous altapase can be given without delay um, if there's felt to be a a risk benefit um, in favour of treatment. So it is successful, but the limiting factor in that has really been the constraints of the time window. So altapase is only recommended if it started within four and a half hours of the onset of symptoms. And of course, there are contraindications to thrombolysis, which lots of us will remember from the days of its use in STEMI. So in the big trials, there's definitely a reduction in mortality and dependence if you give thrombolysis to all ischemic strokes are eligible. Um, And that really has changed the management and the attitudes towards stroke so that they're being treated quickly and effectively. Um, But it's also recognised if you have one of these large vessel occlusions, you actually only reperfuse in about 10% of patients.
0: So in fact, it's not successful in everybody by any means, but even so it still, has a, yeah, still has a, a positive effect. And maybe before we jump into the technique of mechanical thrombectomy, what does the trial data for that look like, perhaps in comparison to, the, to IV thrombolysis, presumably a lot better?
1: Yeah, so for the group of patients that we're talking about with a large vessel occlusion, the trials came out really in up to about 2015. And then there was a meta-analysis called the Hermes meta-analysis, which most people will will quote are in the field. And that showed that using the, the techniques that I'm going to describe, there was a clear benefit of mechanical treatment over thrombolysis with a number needed to treat of about 2.6 to reduce either death or dependence, which is uh, efficacy way above what we spend a lot of our time doing in the cath lab so that's to s- stop somebody being uh, either not surviving their stroke or being dependent on carers long term you only need to treat 2.6 patients to get that effect
0: that's unbelievable isn't it compared to everything we do pretty much mm-hmm. even dare i say it, primary pci um yeah wow okay so hence the push for more mechanical um techniques okay yeah And let's let's talk about the two different techniques that you mentioned in your your review. Um, Can you maybe describe those in a little bit of detail for people who aren't familiar with how this technique is done?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So to understand the treatment and the differences to what we do in the heart, you sort of need to understand the etiology as well as revising in your anatomy, of course. Um, In coronary arteries, we believe that in the vast majority, it's plaque rupture, which leads to vessel occlusion near enough to the location of the plaque. In ischemic strokes, about 50% of them are caused instead by embolization of intracardiac thrombus, as we all know from Mm. atrial fibrillation. So fragments of a large organized clot that fly off and get lodged, most often in the middle cerebral artery. So blood flow to the cerebral cortex, the basal ganglia is reduced. That's in 50%. In maybe another 25%, there's an atherosclerotic event that occurs in one of the internal carotid arteries, or perhaps in the vertebra basilar system. So something, perhaps a plaque rupture or a dissection occurs proximal, and that leads to embolization of thrombus distally. And then the other 25% the etiology is probably small vessel disease in the brain or other cryptogenic causes. Um, and those are the ones that aren't gonna benefit from the treatment. So in the first two cases, to re-canalise the middle cerebral artery of the vertebra basilar system, what needs to be done is the clot needs to be extracted, ideally without embolizing any more of it. And often that's all that's needed. So it's different to ballooning and stenting and, and getting rid of occlusive disease. Really, we're just talking about taking the clot out. If there is a downstream plaque event in a carotid or um, or in a vertebral artery, then that might require treatment in order to get to the thrombus, or it may require treatment later on or afterwards. But the mainstay of the treatment really is just to get the clot out. So in terms of the procedure itself, most of them are still done via the femoral artery. There is an evolution of radial practice, largely in other countries at the moment, and that will come with time, I'm sure. Um, so your familiar short femoral access sheath is put in, first of all, with a standard femoral puncture, and then that's swapped for a long seven or eight French, what they call a flexible sheath. But to us, it's, it's very much like a guiding catheter. Okay. So that, that goes up to um, the cerebral circulation. To steer it into the correct vessel, so the left or right common carotid artery or the vertebra basilar system, you then use a five French diagnostic catheter and they're the same manufacturers and look very similar to what we use in the coronary arteries. So you use your five French diagnostic catheter through this larger sheath over a standard three, five wire and guide your flexible sheath into the correct parent vessel.
0: Yeah.
1: And you take your five French device out and take an angiogram to define the anatomy, to look at the carotids, to look at the middle cerebral artery, to look at the internal carotid vessels, and you get yourself a roadmap of what the downstream vessels look like and where the occlusion is. So, so far it's not dissimilar to a PCI procedure. And then beyond this, there are the two techniques that you referred to to get the clot out. So there's simple thromboaspiration, which we've all done in coronary arteries, this uses a dedicated aspiration catheter. They're sort of floppier, more flexible and more expensive than what we use in the coronary world. Um, you advance that through the guide catheter to the point of occlusion. But because it's so thin and floppy and we're in very small, uh, tortuous circulation, it's advanced over a 014 wire, as we would use in the coronaries, but also over a neuro so, in the neuro labs, we're very into mother and child things. So, we've got our guiding catheter, we've got our aspiration catheter with a big internal lumen, and that's being guided over a 014 wire and a small neuromicrocatheter up to the point of occlusion. Then, you take your neuromicrocatheter and your wire out, and you aspirate. And the aspiration devices are locking syringe, as we're used to, or there are vacuum pump systems that are sold with the aspiration catheters. Okay. Obviously, You don't want to suck out a large amount of blood, otherwise, you'd empty the brain. Yeah. So that's aspiration, straightforward. If the clot does not come out with that, or with lots of experience, as the neurointerventional colleagues have got, of thinking this isn't the clot that's going to come out with that, then we use the second technique, which is something called a stent retriever. Now, a stent retriever is basically a self expanding. Very fine stent on a stick or on a stiff wire. So your same neuromicrocatheter is advanced across the occlusion. The wire is replaced by the stent retriever device, and on retraction of the microcatheter, the stent retriever device deploys itself into the clot. And there was a, a trend for leaving them 30 seconds, 60 seconds. I think people now think it doesn't make much difference. So the stentry expands itself quite quickly and absorbs, is, is the terminology used, that clot. And then it's pulled out in its expanded state with the clot embedded in it. Okay. And it's pulled back into the um, aspiration catheter or the guiding catheter. Now, at the same time as you're pulling all of these clots out, either with Stent or just an aspiration catheter, what one needs to do is aspirate on every port that you've got available. So you would aspirate on the side arm of any sheath, you would aspirate on your guiding catheter, and you'd aspirate on your aspiration catheter. So you need two or three good operators to suck on everything so that any clot that's being withdrawn obviously comes out of the body rather than being embolized off at the point of, of traction with one of the catheters. So those are the two techniques, and they can be Both used in the same patient, they can be used one after the other, or you can choose which you think is going to be most successful up front.
0: And one thing I noticed was that mostly this is done under general anaesthetic, which obviously is different to to STEMI treatment. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, the, the trend still is to do this under general anaesthetic. The justification for that is twofold. One, so that the patient doesn't move while you're in their brain. Um, one could say the same for heart, and we use conscious sedation, obviously, in the CAT lab. Um, the second justification is that you've then got someone who is very concerned with controlling the blood pressure. And um, blood pressure um, is important in stroke treatment. And it's important because the body has its own mechanisms of maintaining cerebral perfusion um, and collateral supply. So, when someone has a large vessel occlusion, they will be hypertensive, and you want to allow them to be hypertensive to perfuse the brain. As soon as you've relieved the obstruction, you actually don't want the hypertension because you don't want reperfusion injury. So, having uh, the operators were uh, confident having an anaesthetist and, in some centers, a neuro anaesthetist there to be very careful about control of the blood pressure, which is obviously easier with a patient under general anaesthetic. There have been trials of anaesthetic versus conscious sedation and they've been reasonably inconclusive, but certainly not showing a major benefit of not anaesthetising the patient.
0: And is there any other concomitant therapy that's used in the lab in terms of things like aspirin, clopidogrel, anything like that, or heparin? Or- yeah,
1: interestingly, so most of the patients will still have had their thrombolytic up front. Okay. Um, and that is termed bridging therapy. Yeah. So... That obviously makes sense to us when we think about pathways the patient presenting and having their thrombolysis on the way to a lab to get their intervention. If the patient is right next to a cath lab, do they still get their thrombolysis? Well, yes, at the moment, they still do. And again, there've been trials fairly recently of, can we do without the thrombolysis? Interestingly, those trials have said that they haven't proven that it's non-inferior to not thrombolyse. So the, the benefit of thrombolysis still appears to be there. But interestingly, it doesn't cause recanalization. So when you go in and look at the vessel, despite having given the thrombolysis, it's still occluded. And yet giving the thrombolysis gives a benefit. So that's important and interesting. And there's obviously hypotheses about the distal embolization. Is it dealing with that? Mm. Is it making the clot easier to retrieve? Mm. Um, by having given the thrombolysis, or is it just a statistical quirk that we haven't got rid of yet? So most patients will have had thrombolysis. Most patients will get aspirin, um, neurons ventralists like intravenous aspirin. A second antiplatelet is not usually given. I think it's still felt to be a step too far because of the bleeding risk, and is only really given if we're deploying a stent in the carotid artery for the sake of the stent rather than the acute pathology. Um, And heparin is avoided except being in all of the flush bags. So all of the catheters that go into the cerebral circulation are on a continuous flush and there's heparin in that flush, but they don't dose heparin according to ACT, again, because there is far more fear of secondary hemorrhage.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense, doesn't it? Um, Can we talk about a kind of ideal patient pathway and what that might look like there's a lovely figure in your paper which i'll make free to access for a few weeks um, after the podcast comes out it's figure three and this looks like it's been put together with plenty of of thought about how it might also be delivered but maybe you can just walk us through it sort of at a high level a patient pathway and perhaps talking about which patients uh, would benefit from this approach
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I can't take credit for the pathway. And this is something that's been um, published nationally by the thrombectomy um, implementation group, uh, which is an NHS England group put together by the stroke leaders trying to improve the pathway and improve equitable access. It's really all about the fact that thrombectomy is only one small part of the pathway. Mm. And the procedure itself can only work if you get the patient to the right place and the right patient to the right place with the right imaging and that they're seen by the right person from the first moment. Of course, it's a very time-sensitive procedure, probably more so than primary PCI. So in that pathway, a patient should be recognized when they're picked up by the paramedic crew or or their GP as being a a fast positive or probable stroke patient. There isn't unfortunately a pre-hospital investigation which can triage patients to the correct hospital so there is no ST elevation. Uh, There are a couple of um, stroke ambulances uh, that were working in the country. I think one of which is still working with the CT scanner in the ambulance, but that's not mainstream by any means yet. So the patient will be delivered to their nearest emergency department and should be met by a stroke clinical specialist. So that may be a registrar or a consultant or a stroke specialist nurse. But somebody whose only interest is not the medreg, but someone whose only interest is that stroke patient and delivered immediately to the CT scanner. And the CT scan should be done within 20 minutes and the entire team stay with that patient. So in the ideal pathway, the CT scan is done to exclude a bleed and also to do a CT angiogram at the same point. And this isn't something that was done for the thrombolysis pathway. The first bit that I've described of excluding a bleed and having a thrombolysis nurse or registrar is already present in most acute hospitals. But the addition of the CT angiogram to see if there's a large vessel occlusion is the important point. And this is a change for most radiology departments. So that scan needs to be undertaken at the same time with the patient on the scanner, not an afterthought later. And then if a bleed is excluded and the stroke clinician has decided that the patient is eligible for thrombolysis, they are then thrombolized there and then in the CT scanner while the scan is being reported. If the scan is then reported as showing a large vessel occlusion, then the patient should be put straight on the thrombectomy pathway, whether that's in the hospital they're in or transferred on the same trolley with the same paramedic crew to the mechanical thrombectomy centre. If a large vessel occlusion is not demonstrated, then they continue in their acute stroke pathway. Um, if the patient is not eligible for thrombolysis, this is an extra group of patients who are really going to benefit in a big way. So that's the patients largely presenting at more than four and a half hours. And very many of them are wake up strokes. So because a stroke is not painful, a lot of patients will wake up with their neurological symptoms in the morning And they're currently not eligible for thrombolysis because we don't know if it's more than four and a half hours. In those patients, there are more complex imaging techniques such as CT perfusion or MRI that can be then undertaken to time the stroke and to see if there's salvageable brain tissue and to see if those patients would benefit from a mechanical procedure. Which seems like quite a big step, but it's very important because it's for this group of wake up strokes who have no other treatment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is laid out in in great detail in your figure, which I would certainly advise everybody to have a look, including some use of AI and machine learning to automate some of these steps, particularly when it comes to the imaging and detection of, as you say, brain at risk and large vessel occlusion. Um, How is this going to be delivered, do you think? Or how is it being delivered at the moment Um, in terms of neuroradiologists? I'm assuming are doing most of this intervention, uh, but there's clearly an interest from the cardiology community To get involved. Um, How do you see this? Or maybe you can tell us about the state of play at present and ideally what you'd like to get to in, say, five or 10 years.
1: So, the NHS long term plan said by 2022, 10% of patients will have access to this. As we said earlier on, it's currently 2%. There has not been as rapid progress as one would have hoped. And as with many interventions of this sort, we are a long way behind much of Europe and much of the rest of the world in our access. It's not just the procedure itself. It's everything that goes along with it. So it's the imaging we've described and it's the pathway, but there is a big gap in personnel, not only stroke physicians, radiographers, and therapists in the stroke pathway, but there's a big gap in people who can undertake this procedure. So currently, the plan in the UK is for this to be available 24-7 in 28 neuroscience centres. So those are the centres that have neurosurgery. And that covers a large proportion of the country. But as we know from primary PCI and cardiothoracic centres only, won't cover the entire population. And there, there are patient populations who won't have timely access if we stick to those 28 centres. But even if we say, as a conservative plan, we're going to make it 24 7 available in 28 centers, and you think about a one in six rotor, then you probably need 300 people. Mm-hmm. There are currently fewer than 100 trained to do this. And all but four are neurointerventional radiologists. So they're the ones who started doing this procedure because they do procedures in the brain. It's a reasonably straightforward procedure from a practical point of view, albeit you need, of course, the support of the team, the stroke physicians and everything else that surrounds it. But the actual practical procedure itself of taking the clot out could be learnt by interventional cardiologists and interventional radiologists who all have catheter and wire skills and use similar techniques. Um, our thought within BASIS is that If enough interventional cardiologists were willing to join in, then we could bolster those rotors immediately to have a 24-7 rotor in all of those hospitals and be ready to expand it to other centres. The inability to do that so far has been um, in an inability to source training for the procedure. So there isn't currently a willingness to train other interventionalists to do this. And it's probably for a number of reasons, some of which are understandable, some of which are more difficult to understand. But currently, nobody has been willing to train an interventional cardiologist to undertake the procedure. I've got a list of names, addresses and emails of at least 80 interventional cardiologists who have said, I'll do this tomorrow if you train me to do it. Um, So the workforce is there and willing. How it's going to pan out over the next few years, there is a GMC credentialing document which has now been approved which is a a method of signing off non-neurointerventional radiologists to do this and so the document is there the sign-off procedure is there but the training is still not there and I think it will come and the other side of it is the practical facilities Uh, so for example in the future a hospital that's not a neuroscience center that doesn't currently have neurointerventional radiologists could run such a service with the stroke physicians, the interventional radiologists and the cardiologists, so that patients who would otherwise not have access can get access to such a procedure. There are examples in other places in the world, particularly in Eastern Europe, where the STEMI network has taken on stroke intervention as a whole. For example, in Moscow, all cath labs doing STEMI also do stroke. So you then don't need double the number of teams on call and double the number of personnel on call. The same team does stroke as does intervention. And that change was made over a course of about three months.
0: Wow. And I guess at least with stroke, from what you're saying, there's going to be very little activity at nighttime. So potentially, yeah, not too much clashing during the nighttime. Wow. Okay. But with that amazing number needed to treat, it seems like it's hopefully just a matter of time before you know, sensible heads can can organize some kind of training scheme, as you say, just in a limited area of neurointervention. But um, I guess it's for <laughs> people at a higher pay grade than me and maybe you as well to, to sort out the politics of this. But it's good to know that there's a GMC sign-off process. There are people who are up for learning about it. I know certainly my colleagues at Royal Papworth, some of them I've spoken to, and they said they'd be more than happy to, to join in with this. Is there anything else you'd like to share, Helen, before we let you go?
1: I think the only other thing to say is anyone who is interested and willing I can currently advise you on how to get some theoretical training uh, possibly how to get some simulator training but I'd certainly be delighted to discuss it with anyone who has an interest so that we maintain a willing workforce that we can offer our services to patients with stroke in the future
0: brilliant well I'll certainly put your contact details in the show notes and I just want to finish by thanking you for uh, joining me today
1: thank you very much Thank you.